and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited because on this episode, I'm playing an interview that I did with Noam Chomsky, none other than Noam Chomsky. I did it with my weekly co-host, Nando Villa, who hosts Jacobin's weekend show with Anna Kasparian. He also is one of the hosts of Woke Bros, the podcast. And you'll definitely want to become Patreon supporters if you're not already, because the Patreon-only episode for this week is an interview with Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House and Kush Vlog, which you can find on YouTube. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Takes like a second, maybe five to ten seconds. Leave a nice review, leave some stars. Also, just a heads up that you're going to hear some yapping and barking and growling, and that was from Noam Chomsky's very energetic dog. Hello, everyone. Is this thing on? Hey. (laughs) I'm on right now. All right, awesome. Same joke every time. Okay. Uh, How's it going? Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Uh, Really excited. We have um, Nando Villa with us. Wednesday night, Nanda Villa time, and we are so chomping at the bit. So without any further ado, I'm really excited to be bringing on to the virtual stage um, <laughs> uh, Professor Noam Chomsky. Welcome. Hi. Hi. I think everyone watching this is a huge admirer and knows who you are, but you have a new book coming out, Internationalism or Extinction. Very excited to read. And of course, Professor Chomsky is a linguist, philosopher, cognitive scientist, author of over 100 books, and someone who's, I think, you know, analysis of politics and media has shaped many, many people's um, conceptions and understanding of the world. So welcome. Glad to be with you. I wanted to just start off with the election and then get into kind of more general Uh, timeless questions. But there's been a lot of debate about the significance of the elections, about whether to vote, who to vote for, whether it matters in a blue state, whether it matters in a safe state, only in a swing state. And I know that you had a debate on um, Bad Faith podcast with Brianna Joy Gray in Virgil, Texas. I was wondering if you thought anything productive came from that exchange, like if it changed the way you thought of anything or, or saw anything. I think it's so simple that there's nothing to debate about, frankly. It's kind of amazing that it's even being discussed. In fact, the fact that it's being discussed shows something quite interesting about the collapse of left culture. In traditional left culture, this would never have been discussed. I mean, for the traditional left, elections are kind of an interlude. They're something that take a couple of minutes away from real political activity. Real political activities, constant activism, doesn't have to do with elections. Every once in a while, an election comes up, you take a little time, maybe 10 minutes, uh, to see if there's something, if there's a significant difference, if there's somebody so awful that you should vote against them. Perfectly obvious this time, it's nothing to discuss. So yes, there's somebody so awful that you should vote against them. So you go to the voting booth and you vote against them and you get back to work. I don't see actually it's worth remembering, which many people don't seem to comprehend, that on November third you only have two choices, assuming you're not voting for Trump. So if you're one of us, you have two choices. One is to vote against Trump, the other is to help Trump win. Those are the two choices. There are no others. If you decide not to vote, you're helping Trump win. You're taking one vote away from the opposition. 
puts him one vote up. So the choices are very simple. Either you vote against Trump, try to get rid of this malignancy, and then move on, or else you try to help Trump win and make the malignancy worse. I can't understand how that can be discussed. Is your position on that the same, whether it's in a um, a swing vote or non-swing vote, in, in terms of the kind of electoral college versus popular vote? Sorry? Do you think that that's that people who live in um, safe states, for instance, where it's definitely not going to go to Trump or definitely going to go to Biden. Like, do you think that there's a, an imperative to vote even in those states because of, do you in think the, a popular vote defeat of Trump is significant? Well, ordinarily, my own view has been in the past that assuming that it's worth voting at all, which sometimes it isn't, uh, then in a swing state, in a non-swing state, do what you like. So like in, I lived in Massachusetts right. most of my life. I usually voted, if, if I voted, it was usually for green or something like that. But uh, this election is different. We actually have a creature, first time in the history of parliamentary democracy, goes back hundreds of years. First time that there's been someone who says, if I don't like the outcome, I'll stay in office and I'll surround myself with paramilitaries and our militias will keep us in. And the Republican Party is organizing openly, publicly, batteries of lawyers trying to figure out some ways to find gaps in the Constitution so that they can undermine the election if they don't like it and throw it to the House of Representatives so they have a majority of states. It's not secret. It's perfectly open. Right. So under those circumstances, the greater the popular vote against Trump, the less likely it is that they can carry off this these shenanigans. So if you're interested in getting rid of Trump this time, not before, I think it's important to vote against him, even in a non-swing I've been wanting to ask you because I, in the United States, there has been in recent times um, a reduction of democ of the conception of democracy to voting once every two years to that, that that's that's the, that encompasses the whole of democracy and I think one of the points that you make a lot is that that's just a very small part of democracy but that's not the popular conception um, what what would you tell people um, that democracy is or how like because I think there's a lot of like very earnest attempts from people to be like well I want to do more I want to I want to get involved but but there isn't obvious kind of avenues to do that um, for a lot of people they they're they're just kind of alienated and confused and so what would be like a a a, a, a productive way for like a someone watching tonight to to be a participant in democracy actually what you're describing is not new that's the traditional establishment view. The official view, what you learn in school, what you read in the newspapers, everything else, uh, scholarship is democracy means showing up every couple of years, pushing a button, then going away and leave it to your, to your betters to take care of things. That's the standard view all over scholarship, including liberal scholarship. The left has never accepted that until very recently. The recent discussions about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the obsession with should you vote, the on and on discussions about the nuances of this and that, the uh, uh, 
the concept of lesser evil voting, which I'd never heard in my whole life until about three or four years ago, uh, just never arose on the left. It was always recognized that, yes, elections are, we have two candidate producing machines, business run candidate producing machines. Sometimes the ones they produce are so awful that you have to vote against them. Sometimes it doesn't matter, okay? So what's real democracy? Uh, ensuring to the best you can that decisions that are made in the social, the socio-political system, not just the political system, but all of it are responsive to people's needs and interests. And you do that in many ways. So for example, let's take uh, Richard Nixon. Okay, he was president, uh, hardly a leftist, but activism on the left did succeed in making him the last liberal president we've had. Not because he wanted it. That's where the pressures were. So that's why we have the EPA, that's why we have OSHA. Uh, quite a number of liberal innovations came from militant labor action in those years, popular pressures, uh, the act of the militancy of 60s activism. All of that set up conditions in which Nixon uh, responded to popular pressure, even by not escalating the war the way he intended. It's pretty good evidence of that. Same thing happened with Reagan. Uh, massive popular demonstrations about nuclear weapons, huge ones, did press the Reagan administration towards a position where they accepted the Gorbachev proposals on degree of control over nuclear weapons, important ones, ones that Trump incidentally has torn to shreds, like the INF Treaty. So that's politics, okay? You don't put your trust in any leader, that's ridiculous. Uh, but you can, you can pressure them sometimes. Trump is actually unique in that he's immune. You can't imagine anything that would move Trump from his very narrow-minded obsession with paying off the very rich and ensuring his own, uh, his own political future. That's rigid. It could do almost anything that would have no effect. In fact, one of the differences many between Trump and Biden is that Trump's a little, that while Trump is solid, uh, rigidly immune to any pressure, Biden is susceptible to pressure. We've seen it, in fact. And if if real politics goes on, it can be more. And has your view on this changed over time? I mean, I, on not just this question, but I'm curious because you've been a public intellectual for many decades. Um, are there any things that you look back on and you are surprised that you used to think that or you regret your position or you've rethought it and have now a different position on it? Every period is different. So uh, take the 60s, about which incidentally there are many illusions. Uh, a huge issue in the 60s after the civil rights movement, there were many, but the leading one was the Indochina Wars. Now, it's commonly believed today that there was popular protest against the Indochina Wars. There was, 
for about two or three years at the end of the decade. At as late as uh, 1966 in Boston, where I lived, probably the most liberal city in the country with a liberal press. As late as 1966, we couldn't have public demonstrations because they'd be violently broken up by students, among others. Okay? That was Boston. It was very hard to get anything moving. Finally, it broke through. 1967, yes, broke through, then it became enormous. Unfortunately, it tailed off in the early 70s, much too early. As soon as you draw away, then reaction sets in. Plenty. Uh, and exactly what happened with Obama. Too many people on the left forgot that they're on the left and said, okay, here's a nice guy, nice rhetoric, the wonderful marketing techniques, as you probably recall, his first election, he won an award from the American Advertising <laughs> Association for the best marketing camp, uh, effort of the year. Somehow the left didn't see that. They listened to the nice words and said, okay, we'll trust him. And within two years, he had so totally betrayed the working people that they just abandoned. Okay, it didn't have to happen. It could have, things could have happened in those two years. He had, the Democrats had stronger. The one thing that was missing was an activist left. And if it had been there, could have pressed him and the Democrats to live up to some of the pretty words. You pull off the pressure, you're done. It goes right back to where it was. And uh, that's a mistake that should never be made. What's the mistake of concentrating on elections as if they're the be-all and end-all of politics? They're a moment. You have to pay attention to them. You can't pretend the world doesn't exist. So yes, pay attention to them. Sometimes it's worth it. This time, definitely worth it because there's a real poison at the heart of things of, of a kind that hasn't existed before. Four more years of it may really do us in. That's very serious. So yes, you take off a little time, push the button, then get back to work and make sure that pressure Biden and the Democrats to live up to what some of their words and to go beyond. Now let's be concrete. Biden has been pressed by popular pressure to take a fairly decent position on the most important issue there is now, environmental destruction. So his program isn't perfect by any means, but it has good parts, like uh, reaching net zero emissions by mid-century, uh, power systems 15 years earlier. The, the words are good. You look at the small print, it's not so good. The way he's planning to do it is by things like decarbonization, meaning fossil fuels keep being used. That's not going to work. So what the left ought to be doing right now is said, here's your words, let's do it, or else you're going to be in trouble. You're going to lose your popular base of votes. We don't like you, but we vote for you because you're better than the alternative. And you've got to do this. You can't be sure it's going to work, but it has worked with people like Nixon, Reagan, Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy, Roosevelt almost pleaded for it. 
He said, I can't get anything through until you guys make a, make a lot of noise. Make me do it. Yeah. The A. The a. Philip Randolph anecdote. Yeah. Is that the A. Phil, the a. Philip Randolph moment where he said, uh, go ahead, now go make me do it. Make me do it. Yeah. Take over. Threaten to take over the factories with sit-down strikes. That'll push people. Then okay. I. Can so what are what are those today? What can we do? How can we make Biden? Not that I don't think Biden's very FDR. Like I don't think Biden would actually say, "Go ahead, make me do it." But but the principle applies of, of pressure. What what do you think the pressure uh, pressure points are? First problem is getting Trump uh, losing the election. That's one. Second is getting him out of the White House. That's not <laughs> In fact, we don't have to go through it. There's very serious concerns all the way up to the top military uh, that there may be an unprecedented situation, which even the military has to intervene. Uh, it's never, that's the kind of thing that happens in the sort of tin pot dictatorships that Trump is trying to create. Uh, hasn't happened in parliamentary systems in the West ever. But that's a possibility. Well, assuming you can get them out, then the next thing for the left is to instantly start right off ensuring that on the issues, the positive aspects of the Democratic Party program, and there are a number, are implemented, and that we go beyond. Start on that right away. That's your task. And it'll be a continuing one. If you relent, pull away, it'll be like Obama again. Yeah. And you, you often talk about the sort of twin existential threats to humanity. One is climate change. And it strikes me that like there there is sort of a mobilization around climate change and things like the Sunrise Movement have been very effective and, you know, the, the advocacy for the Green New Deal and things like that. But the the other one, the, the threat of nuclear war, which used to be a very big issue and discussed a lot, like is just completely absent from the discussion, um, at least in, in the day-to-day -day discourse. Um, and it strikes me that like in the last few years, liberals have really been pushing such a strong, um, to, to, uh, a strong sort of like line against like Russia and, and threaten any sort of cooperation or potential cooperation with Russia on things like nuclear, like nuclear de-escalation uh, and, and, and like the START Treaty and things like that. What, what do you think needs to be done to get that issue more front and center for people? Make them understand what the large, the overwhelming majority of the population understood in the early 80s. That requires educational and organizational efforts. And it's not that hard. And we're moving towards a very dangerous situation that's been escalated by Trump. We can pull it back. There are many very concrete things that can be done and that people can easily understand. When you talk to an audience, they understand it in 10 minutes. So let's take what both parties describe as the greatest threat to peace, uh, Iranian nuclear weapons, okay? Let's concede for a moment that they are a threat. I don't think they are. I don't think there's even any plans, but let's agree that's a threat to world peace. Is there anything you can do about it? Very simple. You can move to institute a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region with intensive inspections, which work. 
We know that they work. U.S. intelligence agrees that they work. Right through the joint agreement period, they were working very effectively. So you got U.S. intelligence on your side. What's stopping you? Well, take a look. Not Iran. Iran strongly in favor of it, have been for years. And not the Arab states. They've been pressing for it for 25 years. Not the global south, 130 countries, strongly supporting it. Europe supports it. Why doesn't it happen? Because of the United States. The last case was Obama. Comes up in the international discussions, which never get reported. And U.S. vetoes it. Uh, Obama was the last one in 2015. Why is Obama vetoing? In order to preserve Israeli nuclear weapons from inspection. Goes beyond. The United States does not recognize that Israel has nuclear weapons. Why? Of course it does. Everybody knows it. It's no secret. They don't recognize it because that opens some dangerous doors like American law. American law bars economic and military aid to countries that have developed nuclear weapons outside the framework of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Neither the Democrats or Republicans want to open that door, but the left ought to want to open that door. And people understand it very quickly. There's a lot of the population, not for good reasons, that doesn't like foreign aid altogether. And the idea that in order to protect uh, illegal aid to Israel, we are facing, raising the danger of extreme, extreme danger of serious war. People can understand that, but they're not going to understand it if they don't know about it. Okay. Uh, the two parties, the media, the scholarship, make try very hard to make sure nobody knows about it. Very similar to other situations in which the left had a role, get people to understand things. It's not quantum physics. It's on the surface. You talk to a bunch of teenagers to understand it in 10 minutes. You know, Okay, anybody else too. This is just one of many things that is the task of the left, not debating issues about uh, lesser evil voting and things like that. Pay attention to these things that matter and will matter right away as soon as Biden is in. Now, on this particular issue, there's a lot that can be done. Even among the public attitude have changed enormously on these issues, on the whole Middle East issues. Now, the, the leadership uh, is not reacting. They're in the hands of the lobbyists and the donors. But the population has changed. So the main support for Israeli expansionism and crimes has been liberal Democrats up until recently. Now it's shifted. Now it's in the most reactionary parts of the population, uh, evangelicals, ultranationalists. That offers openings. Okay? Don't have to spell them out. You can think about it. it. means there are things that can be done to change Popular opinion can't be suppressed forever if it is active. If it is, you're just thinking it in your, in your living room, doesn't matter. But if you're active and organized, you can make a difference. So what, 
is with okay. people like Nixon and Reagan. Okay, so, so okay. that's just one thing. There's many other things. Let's take the fossil fuel industries. They have to go out of existence, not immediately, but within a few decades. I suppose the uh, here's something very feasible. The government just buys them. They're pretty cheap now because of the low price of oil. So take them over, not to nationalize them. We don't want another Aramco around. Uh, put them in the hands of the workforce. Socialize them. Put them in the hands of the workforce and the community. Workforce knows what to do to cap wells that are spewing methane act. Uh, they know how to convert to convert to, to sustainable energy. Way, many more jobs, way more jobs, better jobs, better environment, better life for people. Okay, let's move through that. Uh, universal health care. We should stop falling into the pretense that this is a radical proposal. You make it clear to people that you know, when left commentators in the press, what's called left commentators, say it's a good idea, but too radical for Americans, tell them what you're saying is that Americans are so backward that they can't rise to the level of the entire world. I mean, you can't think of a country that doesn't have universal health care in some form. So it's, it's nothing to argue about. You're also we, lying because it is overwhelmingly popular. There's a lot of education to be done on this because the counter argument that always comes up, it's going to raise your taxes. Now here we get to a deep problem of American ideology that hasn't been challenged. People feel that if you pay taxes, somebody's stealing something from you. But if you pay twice as much for insurance, nobody's stealing from you. Insane, you know? doesn't take long to, uh, to to reveal, to lift the veil from these things. Uh, it's, uh, these are things which the left should be pressing all the time and can do. Uh, it extends very widely and well beyond. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, barriers could be overcome pretty quickly if there was coordinated energetic activism of the kind that there has been among young people at least on environmental issues which made a difference well how do you view your own role as a public intellectual i mean you obviously studied and worked in linguistics and so was this just a coincidence because of your political interest do you think that you're looking at linguistics gave you a kind of framework that isn't available to everyone through which to look at the world around you I mean, it helps to have lived through 90 years. Well, yeah, there's, there's that. <laughs> uh, the period of uh, the New Deal period, a lot of good things happened. But if you were alive then and you were paying attention to what the leading uh, figures in liberal intellectual culture were saying, you could see all this coming. I mean, I've quoted a lot of it in writing, but it's worth remembering. The major intellectual figures, public intellectuals, liberals, Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, liberals, people like Walter Lippmann, for example, or Howard Laswell, founder of modern political science, what they were saying 
to each other, you know, public doesn't read it, is the population is stupid and ignorant. They are outsiders. They have to be spectators, not participants in action. They have to be fed necessary illusions and emotionally potent oversimplifications. That's the great hero, Reinhold Niebuhr, who you're supposed to worship. Uh, uh, That's where the public belongs, out of the political arena. They have a function, show up every couple of years, push a button, go back home, become spectators. It's none of your business. That's the official liberal line. Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, liberal intellectuals. So it's nothing new. What's new is the left has bought into it. That's new. All the discussion about lesser evil voting, all this fuss, is a matter of collapsing to the establishment position that politics means showing up every couple of years for uh, to pick somebody. And you rarely vote for anyone. Most of the time you vote against someone if you vote at all. But that was just second nature. Yes, of course. And you don't put your trust in anybody. You know, you know who they're from. Okay. Sometimes there are people who are decent people, so you actually want to vote for them. I mean, I'll say over my many years, when the Republican Party used to be an authentic political party, which it was at one point, now it's off off the spectrum. But I, I voted for Republicans in the 1960s, and the reason was the Republican, like in the district where I live in. Lexington, outside of Boston, the most uh, active opponent of the war in Vietnam, right. and supporter of civil rights, happened to be a Republican. Actually, I knew him, had him over to the house to talk to neighbors, I don't care what parties. That's when you had two parties. In fact, you just take a look at what they were like. Now take 1960, Nixon, Kennedy, election. And Nixon had pretty good reason to think that he had actually won the popular vote, that it was stolen by machination, <laughs> the Democratic Party city machines. Right. Challenge it. He put the welfare of the country above his personal ambitions. That's Richard Nixon. <laughs> Trump doing that? I mean, you can't even laugh at it. It's, uh, <laughs> Okay, country yeah. changed a lot in the neoliberal reaction. And that's another thing we should remember. Uh, Trump is turning neoliberalism into a hideous caricature of itself, but was bad enough before Trump. Uh, there's a reason for the anger and resentment uh, all over the all over the world here too. People have been shafted for 40 years by Democrats and Republicans actually started with the late Carter. Reagan took it off to the stratosphere. Clinton carried it further. Obama carried it further. And there's a cost. I don't know if you've seen, but uh, the Rand Corporation, about the most respectable uh, analysis institute you can find, just tried to give a number to the amount of wealth that was transferred from the working class and the middle class to the very rich 
during these 40 years. Their estimate is $47 trillion <laughs> from the working class and the middle class to the very rich, and it means the top fraction of 1% if you look closely. Well, people may not know the details, but they know about their lives. They can see what's in their lives. And that is fertile territory for a con man like Trump to say, I'm your savior, I'm your savior, I love you. Meanwhile, I'll shaft you, I'll stick a stagger in your back. Okay, he's carrying it off brilliantly. Now that's all before Trump, most of it. He's magnifying it. Now the Take the pandemic. I mean, the United States has a, a absurd health system. Actually, we have universal health care in the United States, but it's the worst imaginable system. It's called emergency room. Mm. If you can drag yourself to an emergency room, they'll take care of you sometimes expert care. It's the most savage, costly, brutal system of health care you can imagine. Plenty of people suffer from it, know about it. Okay, let's get them organized to overthrow it. Uh, same with the, uh, take the pandemic. It could have been prevented. The means were available to prevent it. Scientists knew it, told the world. Uh, another one is coming almost certainly, probably worse than this one. We can now decide whether to let it come and be devastating or whether to cut it off at the pass. That's a decision to be made right now. It's not being discussed, just as nuclear war isn't being discussed. But if it isn't, it's the fault of the left. It's our job to make it, put it front and center so people see it. Professor, I'm, I'm curious to ask you um, about China because I, I sense that um, there's kind of an uh, almost like a new Cold War brewing, or there's just um, a, a, a growing pipe bipartisan agreement that you know China has to be confronted, um, and even some uh, some anxiety from left liberals that if you kind of if the America if if the United States like pulls back from empire that China will sort of fill the void and it's going to be way worse. And, um, and, 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 I, but, but also there's also some members of the ruling class who like need access to Chinese markets. And so it's like a little confusing. I'm curious how you read, uh, this sort of new, uh, newfound aggression towards, towards China. It's bipartisan, as you say, and that's one of the tasks of the left is to deal with it. Uh, first of all, there's plenty wrong in China, a lot of crimes, you know, very uh, deeply authoritarian society, a lot of controls, planning to object to. Now, those aren't the reasons. Uh, listen to the reasons. Uh, China's stealing our jobs. Right. <laughs> How is China stealing our jobs? Uh, does China have a gun pointed at the CEO of Apple saying, you got to invest here? Uh, haven't heard that. It's the American corporate system that's stealing your jobs not China. They can make more money by destroying your job and working in places with, enough, with the miserable working conditions, uh, no health standards, no environmental standards. They make money that way. So they're stealing your jobs. Do you have to let them do it? Of course not. You're granting them the right to do it. You don't take away that right. They won't do it. Okay. Uh, China's 
moving ahead of us in technology. Is that a problem? We ought to be in favor of that. Like I live in Arizona, okay? A little bit out of the city. Very weak internet connections. Because the United States is basically a third world country. It's not <laughs> an advanced infrastructure. Well, there is a corporation in China which has it, Huawei, okay? Uh, all kind of fake reasons are being made, uh, totally ridiculous reasons, why we have to prevent Huawei from developing. But let, let's not let them have high-quality conductors, semiconductors. That makes no sense. We ought to be, Arizona ought to be making a contract with them. Then we could have a, a rapid uh, 5G transmission a couple of miles out of the city. I mean, it's, it's fine in the business sector. Of course, there, everything works fine. You move a little bit out of town, uh, begins to decline. Go off into the rural areas, people often don't even have broadband. Okay, we should be in favor of cooperating with China. Let's take what, the most immediate direct thing, vaccines. We can't tell for sure, but it looks as though China may be in the lead in developing vaccines. Uh, furthermore, they've at least said, whether they'll do it or not, we don't know, that they're going to make the vaccines available uh, without cost to poor countries that need them. Should we be trying to prevent China from doing this? Or should we be cooperating with them? I mean, the answer is elementary. Yes, we should be cooperating with them. Uh, what about, there are things that China shouldn't be doing shouldn't be supporting those, preventing plenty of things we shouldn't be doing. Other countries should be preventing us, okay? But the, the issues with China have to be met by diplomacy and negotiations and mutual support. We have a lot to gain by mutual support, as things I've mentioned. These are all things that I think should be brought to public concern and attention. The Democrats are going in the opposite direction. You have to have somebody to hate. Uh, Trump has to have somebody to hate. Okay, left shouldn't be going along. That doesn't mean apologizing for Chinese authoritarianism and crimes, of course not. But it should be moving towards the arena of negotiation, diplomacy, none of this crazy lies about China stealing our jobs, trying to China's trying to develop. We got to stop them. I mean, all of, all of that is ludicrous. You know? um, one final question for me um, is: uh, Do you have time for another question? Because I realize we've gone over a bit. Uh, one more. I'm already okay. off the next interview. A little bit late. Okay. Um, I wanted to know if you've been surprised by the way there seems to be this new rejection on the left of free speech that I, I mean, I haven't lived through, but I also don't know about it existing before in the United States, at least, where they, you know, people used to kind of classically, um, even just standard issue liberals used to embrace free speech and leftists did as well. And w there's this movement now. I mean, you signed this this letter that was controversial seen as controversial by many. Um, and, and it seems like there's a kind of stifling of debate or dissent and a fear of saying something that will get you in trouble, let's say. 
Um, how, how, have you seen this before in your decades of history and is it new and where do you think it's coming from and what are the effects of it? We've well, seen it before. We just don't recognize it. Uh, what's called cancel culture now is standard establishment procedure. That's right. the way the mainstream works. You don't like something. You don't let the guy get a job. You don't let his books be published. Uh, you cancel his meetings. It uh, goes on all the time. What's new is that segments of the left are trying right. to into it. That's a mistake. It's a mistake in principle. It's a mistake in tactics. It's right. a gift to the right. They love it. In fact, Trump, you can see by the publicity it gets, they love it. Uh, right wing is ecstatic. You block somebody's book. Uh, they present themselves as noble defenders of right. free speech against the left-wing fascists. You're gaining, yeah. uh, you're losing the opportunity. Uh, suppose somebody comes to campus whose, whose views you hate. Okay, One thing you can do is give them a gift. Keep them from talking. They're ecstatic. Big gift. Uh, the other thing yeah. you can do is let them come to campus Use it as an educational opportunity. Set up counter meetings, expose them, uh, bring up the issues they're talking about, get people to think about them and work on them. It's a major opportunity. Even quite apart from principle, just on pure tactical grounds, there are sensible ways to react to these things. And here the left is, parts of the left, I should say, are making the kind of mistake that's sort of similar to the laser-like focus on elections. That's not the traditional left stand. It's not the stand that people should take when they think through the consequences of their actions. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And thank you. you'll have to come back on um, if you, if I mean, you don't have to, obviously. <laughs> We'd be excited <laughs> if you did. We would love we'll to. We'll cancel you yeah. if you don't come Yeah, yeah, come yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you so much, Professor Held up long enough for this talk. <laughs> what do you say? Sorry. Okay. Oh. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Wow. Well, Katie, Papa Gnome, legend. I know. I, yeah, that was a, uh, yeah. Whew. You know, it's, um, it's always, I always love to talk to uh, like the old timers kind of thing, the people who like survived the long, the long uh, wilderness of, of neoliberalism and uh, like with their kind of principles intact and, and sort of seeing a window into the past, uh, you know, the um, I, I, I frequently think that there's kind of a, a slight narcissism of youth in which we think we have to come up with new solutions for right. new problems or whatever. Um, and really, for the vast majority of problems, like they've they've already been debated a million times and and the answers are there and have been and have been for a long time. And, you know, there's probably there are probably are slightly new things that that, that need to be addressed. But the vast majority of problems have um, kind of been adjudicated in some way by people much smarter than us hundreds of years ago. <laughs> you know, I just, I frequently get that impression. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow, he's a legend. We had him on, Matt Taibbi and I had him on for Useful Idiots, but it was very different because he and Matt know each other. So there was that, you know, I felt like I was meeting him for the first time. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Nando. All right. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to The Katie Halper Show. Become Patreon supporters if you're not already, because the Patreon-only episode for this week is an interview with Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Also, please rate and review The Katie Halper Show on iTunes. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. 